Uh, we're going to look at a number of passages today, so let's take our Bibles and start in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. I'm calling this message first and ten, and that's not because today's the Super Bowl. Um, it's, it's not because I'm trying to be clever. It really, um, I thought, described when I was working on the series a couple months ago, it really described the next part of our study on biblical giving. Um, of course, it doesn't hurt that it's Super Bowl Sunday, and that's my title, but anyway. Um, this study is an extension of what we've learned in the last two weeks, um, that giving and how we use our money is ultimately uh, an issue of our heart for the Lord, that, that giving starts with the heart. And then last week we studied how the Lord has to be first in everything in our lives, and that includes how we give. And the order in which we're doing this um, is, is very intentional and very important um, because unless we see the, the vital role of giving as grateful children, as sacrificial children because of what God has done for us, unless we see it as disciples rather than just, well, this is what the Bible says you're supposed to do. Um, law doesn't motivate the heart, right? Our hearts are motivated by grace and by what God's done. So unless we see this as children, unless we see this as disciples, talking about percentages and talking about faith and talking about impacting others, that's just going to be clinical to us. Theology is intertwined all throughout the Scripture, and God is consistent in what He teaches uh, throughout Scripture. The message stays the same. God is unchanging. So it's not like the Old Testament gives us a different message and the New Testament is, is beyond that. Everything matches up. Everything flows together. And even though the Old Testament is about the law and it's about the Jewish people and we know that, that uh, the New Testament is about Jesus Christ and about grace and about um, the world and what's going on uh, in terms of salvation spreading, God's word is uh, unchanging. God's spiritual principles stay the same throughout. But when it comes to the topic of tithing, which is our study this morning, there's a lot of debate. And I've read article after article and commentary after commentary, and, and there's a lot of people that say, does this law that God gave to the Old Testament Jews, does it carry over to New Testament Christians? Now, one school of thought says that the tithe still applies, that, that it applies to us as believers and that all Christians are called to tithe without exception. The other group says that tithing is a principle of the law and because the law was finished by Christ and we're in the new covenant, that, that tithing doesn't apply to us today. In between that are a lot of people who are either just giving with their gut or giving uh, based on their circumstances because they're uncertain about it or don't think about it at all and just throw something in the plate or don't give anything. And when we started this series, we said that one of the goals was that we want to have a strong theology, and it is a theology, of money and of giving. So it's really vital that we get this right. It's really vital that we understand this well. And then when you add in the statistics that I gave you a couple weeks ago about the state of giving in the American church, that 3% of evangelical Christians tithe, 16% give absolutely nothing, the average donation is $17 a week. And if everybody in the American church tithed, that there would be an additional $139 billion a year for outreach. Think about that, $139 billion 
to do ministry. When we hear those numbers added up, then we say we have to understand this well. So I want to give you a couple bottom line questions this morning right at the start, okay? Question number one is, are Christians in 2018 called the tithe? Are, are you and I supposed to tithe? And if not, if the answer is no, what are we supposed to give? Because if, if we're not under that part of God's spiritual principles about tithing, then, then what are we supposed to do? Now, as always, where does our answer come from? Doesn't come from books, doesn't come from seminars, doesn't come from televangelists. Where does it come from? What you're holding in your hand, right? Comes from the Word of God. And the Word of God's clear. The Word of God teaches us very, very well. So let's start by understanding what a tithe is, all right? A tithe, as many of you know, is the Hebrew word for one-tenth. It means one-tenth. And you may not know, and I don't mean that condescendingly, you may not know that in the Old Testament that one-tenth meant more than just money. It actually meant everything you had. 10% of your income, 10% of your cows, 10% of your grain, etc., etc. And it's important to see that this principle was not restricted to the law. In fact, when we look at Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17, this is 400 years before Moses. This is 400 years before God establishes the law. So that's a long period of time, right? It's, it's not just a couple days. It's 400 years before God ever says, here's the law of God. Here's what you're supposed to understand. He says this to, Mo, uh, to Abraham, verse 17. Then his return from the defeat of Chedor, oh, I can't pronounce that word, Chedor Lamor, uh, that's pretty good, right, for the pastor on a snowy day, from the defeat of Chedor Lamor, yeah, that's good, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, verse 18, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, now he was the priest of the God most high. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram, end of verse 20, key sentence, Abram gave him a tenth of all. Now, just a couple chapters before, in chapter 12, we know Genesis 12, right? Abram has received God's covenant. I will give you a land, I will give you a nation, and I will bless you. The three parts of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. So I'll give you a, a place to live, I'll give you descendants that outnumber the sands of the sea, and I will bless you, I'll be your God. That's two chapters before. Now we get to chapter 14, and Abram finds himself in the middle of a war. There are five kings on one side, there are four kings on the other side. So nine kings are fighting, and, and Abraham wouldn't care except his nephew Lot, who we know in the chapters from 14 to 16, had made a decision to go towards Sodom and to keep pitching his tents closer and closer until he's now the official greeter for Sodom. So he's completely engulfed in that nasty, horrible, vile, perverse city. He's right in the center of it. And he gets caught up in this war between the nine kings and he's taken captive. How many know that when you're in the middle of sin, it ends up in a bad place? When you, when you are living in that world, it's not going to end up well. So Abram decides, look back at verse 14, that he needs to go and rescue Lot. 
So he takes just 318 men with him, and he pursues these armies that have won this battle, and not only gets Lot back, but he gets the citizens back, and the soldiers back, and the possessions back, the cattle and the sheep and the grain and the oil and all that. Because just as when you're stuck in sin, the end result is not good, when you trust the Lord and he's with you, there's victory. Such a big contrast between Abram and Lot, not only in terms of their choices, but in terms of how they honored the Lord or dishonored the Lord and how they ended up. History still recognizes, right? Jamie said it, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel doesn't talk about the God of Lot because Lot didn't want to serve the Lord. So Abram comes back, and as he's coming back, the passage we read, a priest of the Most High God, okay? I love that phrase. Actually, it's the God Most High. How often do we talk about the God Most High? Oh, God and Jesus and, yeah, oh, he's my friend. Yeah, we're so flippant about God. This is the God Most High. And the priest of the God Most High, his name is Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is described here as the king of Salem. That's the word for Jerusalem. So there's a connection between the city of God that's to come, and he comes out to meet Abram. Now, Melchizedek's kind of a mysterious figure in Scripture. He only appears three times. And in those three times, we are told, especially in Hebrews chapter 7, that he is a type of Christ. What does that mean? It means he's a picture of Christ. He's an advance showing of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. So this, this priest, this type of Christ, this early picture of what Jesus is going to do, he comes out to meet Abram and he blesses him and he blesses the Lord. Now Abram is a wise man and he's a spiritual man. So he recognizes that Melchizedek represents the Lord. And as Melchizedek blesses him, you see that in verses 19 and 20, at the end of the blessing, Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Soldiers, food, gold, livestock, everything. He takes one-tenth of everything that he has, and he gives it to Melchizedek. Now notice in the passage what you don't see. You don't see any command. Melchizedek doesn't come out and say, all right, I'm the priest of the Most High God, and you need to honor him, so you need to give an offering to him, you need to sacrifice him. He never says that. Abram, knowing he's in the presence of God, and knowing that God had given him the victory, that's the key, says, I'm going to give a voluntary offering to present to the Lord. And in doing that, he's saying, I understand that blessing and victory comes from the Lord alone. So understanding blessing and victory, like we just sang in those beautiful songs, understanding that now in gratitude and in honor and in submission to him, in recognition of what he's done, now I'm going to give back to him some of that blessing. Now, it's not hard for us, right, to make the larger connection between the eternal spiritual victory that Jesus has provided us and the voluntary surrender of our lives. God has given us a much greater victory than taking Lot back from nine human kings. God has given us eternal victory through Christ. He's taken away sin. He's given us power to, to live consecrated new lives. He's filled us with His Spirit. Everything has changed. 
And the awesome fact of Christ's sacrifice and the security of his forgiveness and his cleansing and his salvation, that changes everything in our lives. So Jesus then becomes first and only. So when we talk about percentages, before we even talk about percentages, we need to praise the Lord for that because we are able to live. Think about that. Otherwise, you and I are dead. Now, all people are going to die. I get that. But we're talking about eternal death. Every single one of us is sentenced to that. And if Jesus doesn't intervene, every one of us goes to hell. Every one of us is in torment forever. Not because God is mean, but because God is holy and because we're not. So the only reason we live and the only reason we're adopted is because of Jesus. And any claim that we have, any attempt to keep possession of our lives, that's just foolish because we're His and we praise the Lord for that. So here... 400 years, well before the law is ever given, well before the next passage that we're going to read in Leviticus, we see that the first principle of giving is that there's a voluntary giving of 10% out of thanks to the Lord. That Abram just says, out of his heart, I have to give back because God has given me the victory. Now, turn over to Leviticus chapter 27. We're going to look at four different passages this morning. Leviticus chapter 27. This is in range of where we were last week. This is four chapters. Uh, chronology, context is always important when we study Scripture. So this is four chapters after last week's text. Okay, Last week we talked about first roots, right? We talked about the fact that God said, you're supposed to bring the first of the harvest to me as a sacrifice, as an act of faith, as a recognition that I've blessed you. So you bring first to me and that's a joyful process it's a willing process it's not a begrudgingly or i can't believe i got to do this or how am i going to provide for my family nope it, it, this comes first so god says there's a heart behind giving then as the final concept of the law you're supposed to give to me first now we get to the end of the law and we see in leviticus 27 and verse 30 he says this thus all the tithe of the land, remember tithe in the Hebrew means one-tenth. So all the one-tenth of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, it's the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his one-tenth, he shall add to it one-fifth. For every tenth part of herd or flock... Whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He's not to be concerned whether it's good or bad, nor will he exchange it, or if he does exchange it, then both it and the substitute will become holy. It will not be redeemed. Now, what does that mean? The Lord says, you're to give one-tenth of everything to me. All your possessions. That means your, your, um, it means your, your livestock, your wine, your oil, your grain, your fruit, it's all mine. And you see in verse 32, there's kind of that strange phrase, whatever passes under the rod. What does that mean? Well, the shepherd would hold up a rod, okay? So he has a stick he uses to herd the, the cattle and to walk, whatever. So he would hold up the rod 
And as the cattle would come into the pen, they'd go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And the tenth one that would come under the rod, that was the Lord's. Now, if it was scrawny, that was okay. If it was the best bull, that was okay. Because the tenth one belonged to the Lord. And he said, there's no exchanging where you go, oh, man, that's my best bull. What am I going to do now? Can't give the tenth one. Tell you what, uh, Sam, let's take number 11. Let's switch 10 and 11 out because we can't give 10 to the Lord because we need, we need that one. So give him number 11. God says, nope, that's not true. And if you try to do that, both of them are mine. Because the tenth under the rod is mine. Now notice... I don't see any uh, room for debate, do you? I don't see any subjectivity in these verses where God says, you know what, just, just do what you think's best. Just, just figure out something. You got a couple scrawny ones that you're not really using that aren't going to be good for anything. Just give me those. It's fine. As long as you give me one-tenth of everything, I'm good with it. He says, so you don't try to control it, so you don't try to manipulate it, so you don't give me less than you just count them out. Let them come in as they come in. You hold up the rod, give me the tenth one. Now, this is very important because there's one word here in verse 30 that we have to see because it takes us past obligation and it takes us past a sense of hesitation about giving this way. The word is in verse 30. Let me read it again. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. Read the next six words with me. It is holy to the Lord. Holy is the word. Now holy there means consecrated and set apart for the Lord. So the tenth one that comes through, that's the Lord's. It is consecrated and set apart for him. Just as Jesus has redeemed us and sanctified us and set apart from our old life just as we consecrate ourselves in our new life and set ourselves apart to the Lord. Now he says giving, what we give, is also to be consecrated, which means we are to dedicate it to the Lord as a grateful offering that we have specifically and thoughtfully and intentionally set apart for him. Again, the message is completely consistent because the Lord says, I have changed you. I've given you a new example of new life in Christ. And now you're to treat your giving the same way. Consecrated and set apart. Now you might be saying, as I did when I studied, well, that's the Old Testament. That's true. But there's no way we can argue that the concept of being holy and set apart to the Lord doesn't carry through to today, right? In fact, I would say it's even more of a deal for us because we've understood Jesus Christ. So to say, well, I have to be consecrated and set apart in everything, including my giving, that just makes sense because of what Christ has done. Now turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 14. So first we saw voluntary giving as thanks to the Lord. Second, we saw consecrated giving because of what God has done for us. Now we see Deuteronomy chapter 14. And I want us to look at two verses here, verses 22 and 23. 
Moses is speaking to the people. This is about 40 years after the last passage we just read. This is the final teaching to the people. Deuteronomy is kind of the final words of Moses. He's going to die, and then they're going to go into the promised land. We saw that in our Joshua study. But look at what he says here, because it's a, it's a re-emphasis of Leviticus 27. But I want you to see the last phrase in verse 23. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You will eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd, and your flock. Here's the phrase, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now, why does he tell us that? Well, this establishes that there is a purpose behind the tithe. There was a purpose behind it. The Lord is saying to us here, by that phrase at the end of verse 23, he's saying the tithe is not a legalistic regulation, even though it's part of the law. But remember, it was established before the law ever came in existence. But he's saying, I don't want you to treat giving like when I had to go to Mount Pleasant last Wednesday and pay my property tax. Ouch. Or in a couple months when we've got to pay the IRS what they'll spend in a half of a millisecond, right? But is a pain for us because we got to pay the government tax. That Nobody's excited. Anybody excited about paying their taxes in April? Like, yeah, Paul, I can't wait to give the government money to waste. That's a legalistic obligation. You can't live in the United States and not pay your tax. You pay tax for, don't pay tax for 10 years, they put you in jail because that's your obligation. God says, I don't want you to view the tithe that way. I don't want you to view giving that way. Tithing and giving is designed to teach us, look at it, verse 23, to teach us to fear the Lord and to put him first. When you give next week, think of those words as you're giving, fear and first. Now, what does fear mean? Fear literally means here to be afraid, but, but not afraid like, God's going to get me if I don't give. Nope, that's not what it is. It's awe and reverence for the Lord. And I think this is something that is drastically missing in American Christianity in 2018. It has been replaced by this casual, flippant, uh, kind of too familiar attitude with the Lord Most High. And, and that theology, so to speak, and I put that in quotes, that theology kind of God's my buddy and, and we just kind of hang out together. Yo, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, this is literally, this is, this is in conversation, right? Yo, Jesus, my brother. Yo, he's my friend. No, he's the Lord most high. He's the Lord most high. And that, that kind of flippant attitude, it then trickles down in our giving because there's no fear of giving out of gratitude to the Lord. So we disrespect Him with our sacrifice. That's why there's 3% tithing and 17 bucks a week. Now I'll get to that more in just a second. But how can we argue that God is first if we don't fear and reverence Him? If we're not overwhelmed with awe, when we sang those beautiful songs earlier, if we weren't just like, oh, Lord, praise you for what you've done. How could I be worthy of this? How could you do this for me? If that's not our mindset, there's no way we're going to say, I need to give to the Lord first. First fruits comes out of him being first in our lives. 
And I believe a lot of Christians have not learned this and don't practice this. It's, it's a simple secret of giving. If the Lord doesn't come first, instead if it's, I got to pay the bills to, to compensate for my overspending and my debt. And then I got to pay my taxes and I got to pay my mortgage and I pay my groceries. I'm, I'm not criticizing or indicting. That's just a reality, right? And then, Paul, at the end, if there's anything left, which of course there never is, then I'll give to the Lord. I once heard a pastor say, the Lord not only watches the amount you give, he also watches the order in which you give it. Oh, that's good. It's convicting, but it's good. So he's not only watching what we give, he's watching the order in which we give it. And the Lord establishes tithing and he says, I'm the Lord and I come first. And that should be easy for you. It should be a given because you're so grateful for all I've done in your lives. So if you're doing it this way, you'll remember to fear me always. And when you fear me and you make me first, I'll bless you beyond your understanding. Now, how does that fit with what the New Testament teaches. And again, are we called to tithe? Well, let's turn to one last passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Thank you for always having your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 16. We've talked many times about the problems in Corinth, that they were proud and selfish and unsacrificial. So throughout this first letter, Paul is teaching them how that shouldn't be and how to have sanctified hearts and he's teaching them how a believer should actually live so at the end of all that at the end of the letter now that he's established the heart of giving and love for God and all those things at the end of the chapter chapter 16 verse 1 he says this concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia so do you also in other words I've told you how to, how to give, now I want you to do the same. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Now Paul says to Corinth, which was a dysfunctional church, what he told to Galatia, which was a stronger church, he wants them to know, look, I'm not just telling you because I'm picking on you because you're a lousy church. I'm telling you because I told this to Galatia, I'll tell this to Ephesus, I'll tell this to Philippi, tell this to Colossae. I'm going to tell everybody the exact same thing. Here's the principle. On the first day of every week, each person is to lay aside money in keeping with his or her income to save it to give to the work of the Lord. Now there are three parts to that teaching. Number one, giving is to be consistent and regular. On the first day of every week. I know some of you utilize online giving. That's wonderful. I don't know if you've set up a, a regular gift or if it's random, but whether you give online, whether you come here and give on Sunday morning, whatever the case may be, I encourage you to make it consistent and regular. Because he says here, on the first day of every week, this is what you're supposed to do. Second, he says, this is for everybody. There's not one word of scripture that's wasted, right? There's not one word of scripture that's accidental. So what does he say? On the first day of every week, each one of you is to do this. Now this is something we need to model as adults. As I was studying this week, and I haven't thought about this for probably 20 years. As I'm studying that text this week, 
I had a flashback as clear as a bell, and I could see the check that my mom had prepared every week sitting in her Bible. And of course, as a kid, you're curious, like, what are my parents giving? I, I did that. I'll confess to that. I, Whoa, man, that's a lot of money. Every single week, I kid you not, God is my judge. Every single week, I would see her Bible laying out with that check in there. Ready, ready to give. Now, she wasn't making a show. Oh, I'll leave it out so the kids will see it. She was just, that was her routine. That was her consistency. First day of the week, we're going to church. Here's my tithe. Here's my gift. And we need to not only model this as adults and parents, we need to teach it to our kids. You get an allowance, you tithe. You get a birthday gift, you tithe. That, that, listen, if we're going to teach our kids this generation that's at risk of being lost, if, if we're going to teach them theology, we have to teach them theology of giving, right? So they have to see us model it, and then they have to be called to do the same. So, it's consistent and regular. It's for everybody. Third, look at it, verse 2. It's proportional. Proportional. That word is spelled P-R-O, not P-O-R, just so you know. Proportional. It means as we prosper. In other words, keeping with our income. Now, there are a couple applications. Giving proportionally means that the measure of our sacrifice should be equal among all of us. This is why the tithe is such a brilliant standard, because he says... Everybody can figure out 10%. Now, some of us have more income than others. Some of us have less. So the concept is not equal gifts. It's equal sacrifice. Giving is about the heart. There may be, about, there may be some people where you go $17. Paul, you have no idea. That's way beyond my reach. Okay, well, then there are other people that can give more than $17. We'll balance it out and we'll bring up the average. But giving is about the heart. So if you're unemployed, you have a, an entry-level salary, you can still please the Lord with your giving. That's why Jesus, when he's talking about giving, doesn't praise the Pharisees who are coming and making a big show because they had money. He points to the widow with the two mites, which is like a penny, and he says, oh, there it is right there. That, that's what I'm looking for. But he's like, what are you talking about? She's giving nothing. And he's like, she's giving everything. This is about her heart. And that was a greater measure of sacrifice than theirs, even though it was far less monetarily. Now, on the flip side of that, he says, if you've been blessed with more, you're called to give more, but with the same heart of sacrifice. Somebody who makes $10 million a year, right? That's astronomical. I can't even fathom that. Athletes are making 30 a year. <laughs> For throwing a ball. Okay, wrong calling. So let's say $10 million a year. Giving $50,000 to the, to the Lord, which is more than many of us make in a year. Giving $50,000 to the Lord is not a measure of sacrifice. You know how much it is? It's half of 1%. So you make $10 million. I gave $50,000 to the Lord last year. You know what? You're not even close. The call and command is to give proportionally with 10% as the baseline standard. If you can do more than that, 15, 20, 25, go for it. That's between you and the Lord. It's as he stirs your heart. But again, this is an issue of the heart. So let's bring it around. Which is it? 
Is it tithing or is it proportional? Is tithing still applicable? Well, I believe that even though we're no longer under the law, the Galatians 3 tells us that the law was designed to be a school teacher. The law is designed, Galatians 3.24, to be a school teacher to point us to Christ. Now, what did Christ did? Christ gave everything. Christ sacrificed everything to redeem us. So, the New Testament, the reason I didn't take you to New Testament passages on tithing is because there aren't any. Because God doesn't talk about tithing in the New Testament. And we don't want to approach the Bible as legalists and kind of bring the Bible down to that. But by those who are redeemed and saved by God's grace, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, that we can make a strong case for not starting at 10%. There doesn't seem to be anywhere in the Bible where the Lord asks for less than 10%. And as one pastor said, surely no consecrated Christian will give any less than Israel was required to give under the law. I also believe that all Jesus taught us about denying self and placing his first and the concept of real life discipleship teaches that we need to give as much as we can. Listen to some of the concepts Jesus taught. You can just write down the references. Luke 3.11, the man who has two coats is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do the same. That's 50% giving. Luke 19.8, Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I defrauded anyone of anything which he had, I will give him back four times as much. That's 50% and 400%. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. That's 100%. Acts 2, 44 to 45, all those who believed were together and had all things in common and began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone had need. 2 Corinthians 8, 3, the churches of Macedonia gave of their own accord according to their ability and beyond their ability. We get the point, right? Well, 10%, Paul, come on. You, uh, the Lord can't possibly be asking uh, for us to continue to tithe. Actually, he's asking us to do more than that. Ten, ten's the bottom line. You got a coat? Somebody doesn't have a coat? Give them one. You can help other people. You can sell something as we did in that auction back in the spring. You can sell something and give something. Then do that. We want to bless other people. An overemphasis on percentage not only causes us to become clinical about it, but it causes us to miss out on the potential blessing of giving more, of the sacrifice of more. I'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Jesus says discipleship is not only wholehearted, but it's wholly open to what the Lord is stirring us to do. So where we can show greater love and greater gratitude and greater blessing to him, we can do that to each other. So it would be much better for us to ask, not how much do I have to give, but how much do I get to give? Lord, how much can I sacrifice? How much, how much is right for me to hold on to? Remember we talked last week about evaluating what we spend money on. 
thinking about the things that are frivolous in our lives. Not to be legalists, not to be picking on each other, looking at each other. I can't believe you bought a Starbucks. You know, I said last week that I had spent 22 bucks on lunch at Starbucks. Oh, Why did you go to Starbucks in the first place? Because I was hungry. Starbucks, McDonald's, no, don't go to McDonald's. Starbucks, Chick-fil-A, whatever. It's, it's money, right? But we've got to evaluate how do we spend our money and how much do we get to keep. And again, the whole point, this is where we conclude, the whole point is since the law points us to Christ and we're supposed to give thanks to Christ, then the expression of our faith is to give back to him with our lives and our service and our money. Now, next week, we're going to take that concept even further. Because in Malachi, the Lord actually challenges us to test him with our giving. The Lord challenges us. Test me. Go ahead. Try it. Just, just see what I'll do. And that's going to be an exciting study. I can't wait for it because it's going to open up our faith wide. It's going to give us a greater understanding of just how awesome his provision is and how extensive, how extensive God's plans are to bless us and help us.